Good morning, Crossroads. How are we doing? I want to welcome those of you at our Lexington campus and Shelby campuses. We're thrilled to have you with us. And those of you joining us online, thanks so much for joining us. We're glad to have you. Let me just say a big happy Father's Day. Can we give our dads a big hand? Thank you, dads. We love you. We're grateful for you. And let me just say, whether you have biological children or not, thank you men out there for the impact that you have. You are spiritual fathers, and we are grateful for you. Let me just say, I am a byproduct of spiritual fathers. Uh, my dad died when I was eight, and uh, I had youth pastors and teachers and coaches and professors and then family like my brother-in-law and then my father-in-law who are dads to me throughout my life. In fact, just this morning, I got multiple texts from from my spiritual father saying, hey, Dave, we're praying for you this morning. We're praying for you. They do it every Sunday. They text me and let me know they're praying for me. So I just want to say a big thank you to all of our men out there. Thank you for the spiritual fathers that you are in our lives. And once again, I just want to give our, our men a hand. Thank you, men. We love you. We need you. We need you in our communities and in our church if you would, take your Bibles out with me and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible, there is one of the seat back in front of you at every campus, and you could turn with us to page 976. Online, you can go right there and follow along with the notes right in our app. And so make sure you do that. We'd love to have you there uh, in our, on our online campus. Join us and follow along with us. If you're visiting, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being at one of our campuses. Thank you for being online. Would you just, if you're online, just say, hey, I'm new here. If you're at one of our campuses, stop by the New Here kiosk after this service. Uh, we love to connect with you just to say thanks for coming. We have a gift for you. And, uh, you know, we're, we're a big family, but we are a family. And uh, we're in this weird season right now, but uh, we're a large church, but we really pride ourselves in being family. I remember the first time I walked in here, and I was wondering if God was calling me and my family here, and it was a little overwhelming. And then I realized what type of family this was. And I wanted to be a part of it. And so if you're new here, just know we're family here. We hope that you feel welcome and that you can just uh, sit back, relax, and be able to worship Christ and grow in your faith. And we're thankful that you're here. I did want to mention next week, across every campus, we're going to be partaking of communion, the Lord's Supper together. And so uh, we're going to have that safely provided. Don't worry, you won't be following anybody, touching anybody. Uh, it's going to be safely provided for you. And so we hope you'll join us next week. If you're online, make sure that you get your elements ready, grape juice and unleavened bread, uh, wafers that we can provide for you if you need those. Just let us know. Uh, but we're going to be take, partaking of communion next week. Ephesians chapter 1, last week we kicked off a series that we called Weird. And the reason we called it that is because we live in weird times. And yet at weird times, God's unique people, weird people, rise up. Throughout the Bible, actually, we find, and throughout history, that Christians were actually called weird. And so what does it look like in our culture, in our time, in our day, in this odd, weird season that we're in, to live the identity of Christ. What does it look like to live the identity of Christ? And so we're talking about weird, what is our identity in the new normal? And the fact of it is, we are experiencing a new normal. Doesn't matter what angle you come from, there is a new normal. Now for some of us, we don't like that, right? We want everything to return the way it was, when it was a little bit easier. But we're in this season, this coronavirus, and things are not normal. And many experts are saying they're not going to return to normal anytime soon. 
I mean, just look around. This is not normal. We have spacing, and some are wearing masks, and we're being careful. This is, a, this is not normal. This is a new normal. And that new normal, we don't know how long it's going to last. But whether it's the coronavirus or life itself, we all experience this. Isn't it true? Like, like I, I look at my own family, for instance. Um, we are living out a new normal, it seems, like all the time. Someone told me, wait till your kids get older and things will start moving more rapidly. I did not believe them. I was wrong. Uh, I, I've got one son who's starting his doctorate program this fall, and he's uh, starting to be a pharmacist, and so he enters what's called P1 year. And I have a son who's going to graduate from college in December uh, from from Liberty University with his uh, pastoral studies degree, Bible and theology. And, and then I've got one son who's going to graduate this coming year. This is a new normal. Like, new normals happen all the time. For some, maybe it's marriage. For others, maybe it's a new job. For some, it's moving, right? There's new normals that happen all the time. And the question is, where can we root our identity when life isn't normal? Where can we find our identity settled when life doesn't seem to be happening the way we expect it to happen? And that's what this series is really about. We're looking at this book, the book of Ephesians, where these newfound Christians are trying to live the new normal of the Christian life, yet in a world that is confused about their identity. We talked about last week as we, we journeyed through this that there is much confusion in seasons like we're in. Many people are confused about their identity. And so Paul, just like we experienced today, Paul writes to the Christians of the city of Ephesus called Ephesians, and he comes to them and he brings them Christian identity. He describes to them what it means to be a follower of Christ, how to have a Christian identity in a weird season. And he begins, if you remember, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, by dropping theological bombs. I mean, last week, it is one deep word after another deep word, words like predestination and election and these words, uh, inheritance and, and uh, guarantees. I mean, all of these big words, and he begins to drop theological bombs on the believers to try to describe to them what kind of identity they have in Christ, an identity that is rooted, an identity that is grounded. While the world is shifting and moving, there is a couple things that remain the same. And so Paul, in the beginning of this book, he begins by saying, you are chosen by God. You are chosen by God. You are redeemed by Christ, the Son. You are secure by the Spirit. This is your identity to the praise of his glory. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That's our identity. You are chosen by the Father. You're redeemed by the Son. You are secure by the Spirit. And in that, you can root your life. You can stake your life in it. And so he says, this is your identity. This is who you are. In the weird seasons of life, that doesn't change. If you are a follower of Christ, you are chosen by the Father, you are redeemed by the Spirit, you are secure by the Son. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? And all of us here, if you're a follower of Christ, man, you hear that and you're like, yes! And hopefully last week your, your, your head rose a little bit, your chest came out a little bit as we praise God for the goodness of what he's done in giving us Christian identity, of giving us identity in an, a weird season. But if we're just being honest, let's just be raw for a moment. It's easy to hear those words, chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, secured by the Spirit. It's hard to live them. 
It's hard to live in this world just believing that and knowing that. We have a constant pull against that identity, don't we? In this culture, there is a constant pull against that reality. There's a constant pull trying to drive us away. And at times, we can feel like we just can't see. We can feel as if life is cloudy, as if that identity is not as clear as we think it is, as if that identity is not crystal clear. And we can begin to question who we are in the Lord. We can begin to question who we are in Christ. In fact, when, when, I, when I read that passage and I look at our culture today, I, I somewhat feel a little bit like an experience I had a few years ago. Uh, some of our staff had the privilege of going over to visit kind of a behind-the-scenes tour of the 179th Air Wing Base here at Lom Airport. I don't know if you know this or not, but we have one of the, I believe, one of our community gems, our Air National Guard at Lom Airport here in Mansfield, and it is the 179th Air Wing, and I just want to say a big thank you. We, I know many, many of people in our church that serve our nation and serve our state well as a part of the Air National Guard. I just want to say thank you. I know many of you that are serving out there, uh, your, your weekend per month, your week per year, thank you for that service. And uh, I, I believe it's one of the gems of our community that no one talks about. In fact, I didn't even know it was there until I was invited to come and visit. I was blown away, just blown away. Uh, and now I understand as you see over the sky, those C-130 Hercules uh, planes are flying over the sky, they're testing. But I got to do a tour. We got, uh, some of our staff got to do a tour there. And they took us into this room and they called it the dark room. And it was a room and they get, we got in there and they said, okay, here's what we want you to do. Put your hand in front of your face. And they put your hand in front of the face and then they turned out the lights and it was absolutely pitch black. Like you could not see your hand in front of your face. I mean, I, I, you could move your hand as close as you want. There was absolute darkness in that room. Pitch black. Darkness. That's all you could see was nothingness. And then they handed you this instrument, this instrument that you put over your head, it goes over your eyes. It's called night vision goggles. And I was blown away while in a room that's absolutely pitch black, you cannot see, that when you put those goggles on, all of a sudden, you could see absolute details of everything in that room. It was eye-opening. And they described to us how pilots who are taking supplies to places in the Middle East that they can't even name, that they would use these night vision goggles to turn on all the lights in their plane and then be able to drop in the middle of the night and they could see the details as to where they're dropping that could actually save some soldiers on the other end of the world. And so they had to be able to see in darkness. You know, for some of us, we feel a little bit like that, right? Like in this season we're in, it's cloudy. It's dark. Some of us can't see our hand in front of us. And Paul here in the first century writes to a church that's facing this experience. And what he does is he gives them a pair of night vision goggles. And he says, I want to show you how you can have your identity rooted in a season that is absolutely weird. How your identity being pulled by these forces can lead you to a greater view of your life. A greater view of who you are. Because where your eyes look will determine where you'll find your identity. Take a look with me, Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 15. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you 
in my prayers. I want to pause here for a moment. What is the first thing that Paul does after preaching this great sermon in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14? Chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, secured by the Spirit. The first thing he does after stating those facts, the theological bombs that he drops, is he prays. See, as soon as he gets done preaching, he goes right to praying so that we'll believe what was just said. See, he's praying that we would believe the identity that God has given to us. See, Paul knew that it doesn't matter what he said if God didn't then work this into our life through the graciousness of the Holy Spirit. If God doesn't root this, it's not going to happen. And so he says, here's who you are in Christ. And then he prays. He prays and he says, for this reason, based upon all that I've said, I want to pray for you. And, he, and notice he compliments it. He says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. By the way, all through the Bible, very interesting point, the pattern of prayer is always thanksgiving followed by supplication. Thanksgiving followed by request. Everywhere you find it, even Jesus modeled this. Why? Because thanksgiving is the foundation that then you build a structure of prayer. Or let me say it another way. Thanksgiving serves as, as a reminder of past attainments so that you're ready to receive future advancements. So why does prayer always start with thanksgiving? Because when I give thanks, I am prepared for what God is going to ask me to do in the answer to prayer that I'm bringing to him. And so it starts with, God, thank you. And he says, God, thank you for the faith that this church had in you, Jesus Christ. And God, I give thanks for the love they have for each other, the love for the saints. He says, for this reason, based upon those truths, I'm coming to you, God. I have a lot to be thankful for about the church of Ephesus. Their, their, their faith in Christ, their love for one another. And I believe that's true of Crossroads. I believe that's true of us, right? I believe if Paul was writing a letter, he might say the same with us. He might say, God, thank you for the faith they have in you. Thank you for, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the storms, in the midst of the unknown, in the midst of the confusion of identity, thank you for the love they have for one another. And then he goes on. Based upon those truths, God, thank you, he then prays. And notice what he prays for, verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. Now I want to look at this from four different perspectives. Paul really prays for four things. Three of them are dependent upon the first one. So there are four things, the three are kind, of, are kind of dependent upon that first one. But what I find interesting as I read this, as I was studying this text, what I find most interesting as I was reading this is that I love the fact the Bible knows us better than we know ourselves. 
I love the fact that God knows us better than we know ourselves, and, and he preempts this prayer with things that we would say if we were in their shoes. And can I tell you, we say the same things. In a world of confusion when it comes to identity, we come to this world and we say certain phrases that he actually addresses in his prayer. And I want to look at those phrases and they give some points that I believe he's trying to make. The first one is this. For many of us, the reason why our identities aren't set is because we say things like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Now, let me just ask you. In this season of coronavirus and all that's going on in the world, has anybody ever said, God, I have no clue what to do? Anybody ever felt that? I mean, just raise your hand. Go, let's be honest for a moment. Anybody ever thought in your life, God, I don't know what to do? We've all been there, if we're being honest. All of us have been there. I can tell you. Let me just have a little confession moment with you. Uh, as, as a leader, one of the things as a leader that I pride myself in is always being ahead of where we're going. I, I love to be ahead. Now, that doesn't mean I have all the answers, but I love to have a, at least an idea as to where God is leading us. And so I make sure that I, I'm spending time in prayer, that I'm seeking after the Lord, and, and then I bring that to the elders and say, okay, let's talk about this. What do you think? This is what I believe God is leading us. What do you guys think? Let's keep this accountable. Let's talk about this to our executive team and our staff. We talk about this. And so I kind of pride myself in being ahead of the game, so to speak. Why? Because you want to lead people. That's what leaders do. And so I, I kind of be ahead. Can I tell you, just confession time, in this season, there have been multiple times where I have said, God, I have no clue. I have no clue when we should meet. I have no clue about masks. I have no clue about the spread of this. God, what if we gather together and somebody gets it? What do we do? There's no book on pandemics. I mean, there have been moments I've said, I do not know what to do. Now, please, don't tell the staff that I said that. That's confession to you. I've admitted that, that to them. I said, you know, in this season, I like to pride myself in knowing and seeing it and going. I don't see it. I just, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's been like walking through the dark. And you and I probably have all experienced that in our lives, whether it's this season or it's a past season. We have been at places where we say, God, I don't know what to do. You ever heard the expression, can't see the trees through the forest? Been there. We've all experienced that. I don't know what to do. Maybe for you, it actually affects you spiritually, right? You begin to feel spiritually dry. You begin to feel like something is missing. You begin to feel numb about life. For some of us, we grew up in the faith. We grew up knowing the scriptures. And eventually, we lose captivation of Christ. Eventually, we lose being captivated in and all of Christ. And slowly, we begin to fade. And then we say, God, I don't know what to do. Can I make a big problem? or make a big statement, I believe that almost every problem that we experience spiritually is because we get to a point where we just don't know what to do and we throw our hands in the air and say, well, this is the way it is. It's true. I bet you I can, almost every spiritual problem we face, almost every problem is say, it's because we do not know what to do. Now I want to show you what Paul says here because Paul understands that if we don't know what to do, I'll never understand and gra grasp my identity. If I don't know how I ought to live, then I probably am not going to have my identity set in what God has said. I'm going to be pulled away. And so what does Paul do? Notice what he prays for. Verse 17, the God of our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom. Wisdom is life experience. Give you a revelation of the knowledge of him a revelation of God to see Christ afresh and anew. And then 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Now watch this, that you may know. 
having the eyes of your heart enlightened. He says, notice the three phrases, repeat it. That you have the spirit of wisdom, that you have the revelation of Jesus Christ, that you see him for who he is, and that your, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you can know what to do. Here's the point. God, uh, Paul here is praying that we would have the eyes to know Christ more. That we would have the eyes to know Christ more. To have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. By the way, very interesting that in the first century, the heart was actually the seed of thinking. You and I say, do you have a brain? <laughs> you and I say phrases like, are you thinking rightly? And we point to our head. But in the first century, it was, are you thinking rightly? And they would point to the heart. The heart was the seed where emotions and will collided and where they came into being and had context. The heart was a place of thought. And so here he says that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. What is he saying? That we would have the Spirit of God reveal to our souls what Paul has explained to our minds in verses 3 through 14. That we would be able to take them and let them root into our hearts so that we can know Christ better. See, it's not just enough to see and know the facts in the mind, but now it's to be able to live them through the heart. In fact, I want you to notice the last phrase of this little section. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know. That's key, the word know here. In Greek, there are actually two words for the word know, to know something. One of them is the Greek word oida. And oida literally has the idea of knowing the facts. Knowing the facts. It's about knowing the facts of something. The other word in Greek is the word gnosis. Here it's epigenosis. Gnosis is the word knowledge or to know. But they're very different because gnosis literally is personal, experiential knowledge. It's not just factual. It's knowing it personally. Or, or let me illustrate this for a moment. I can know that Apple Hill donuts are sugary baby angel nectar that just tastes so amazing. I can know that. That's oida. But gnosis is when I take that donut and I savor that thing, especially when they're hot. Let's just be honest. They're a little warm. And you put that thing in your mouth and it just melts right there and you taste the apple, you taste the sugar, you taste a little cinnamon and it is like, it is like heaven. In fact, I think it's, it is, it's heaven in that moment, it's heaven on earth. That, that's gnosis, that is I'm experiencing, I know something because I've experienced it. Or, or let's say for, for example, Father's Day, right? I, I can know that my wife is giving birth, I can know that she's in labor, oida, but it's when I hold my son in my arms, I now know that he is there. It's gnosis, it's, it's experiential, it's personal, it's relational. It is this idea of a knowledge that's intrinsic. Now, this is the opposite, by the way. Paul is making this reference, and he does this all through this book. He uses words like filled knowledge, spiritual, understanding, wisdom. Why? Because he's contrasting the, the false teachers who are coming to these Christians and saying, your knowledge isn't yet fulfilled. You need greater knowledge. You're, they were made to feel ignorant as a people. And so what does Paul do? Paul says, no, 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 no. The knowledge you need is the gnosis, the experience of understanding what Christ has done. It's not just to know the facts of the, the truth that we've been chosen by God, 
redeemed by the Son, secure by the Spirit. It's not enough to know that. we got to experience that. We've got to live that. We've got to let it affect our hearts. We've got to let our hearts be affected so that the eyes of our hearts have now understanding to live well. So he's challenging this thinking. In fact, I love the way J.I. Packer describes this. One of the, my favorite books is the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I recommend it to any Christian, but it says this. How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter of meditation, a leading to prayer and praise to God. I take the facts and now I let it simmer into my soul and now I begin to live it. Now I begin to believe it. Now I begin to praise it. Now I begin to trust it. That's the image. Here's the point I think Paul's making. If you don't grow in your knowledge of Christ, you will never know what he wants you to do. When I don't know what to do, what I need isn't just direction specifically. Uh, Sure, I need some direction. But what God is calling me to do is actually know Christ more. I ask the question, how can I know Christ more in the midst of this circumstance? How can I know Christ more in the midst of this situation? How can I know Christ more in the midst of not being able to see? What is the solution? I know Christ more. Obviously, through his word, through prayer, I want to know Christ more. He's saying, let the spirit of wisdom, the knowledge of Christ, and the eyes of our heart have understanding when we know Christ more. It kind of reminds me, when I read this, of a, a gentleman when I grew up, my mom would sometimes give people rides to and from church. And I remember this, this, this family, we'd give this one family a ride, and, and there would be like carpools of people that we would give rides to. And one, one of them was a guy that we would give a ride back to, he lived in the inner city, we'd give him a ride back to the, the kind of the in, in, inside the city. And his name was James. And what was unique about James, everybody knew James in the city because James was actually blind. He was blind. And yet he lived in the heart of the city. It would be like, let's take downtown Mansfield. He lived there, and he would walk the streets with a, a, a cane, a blind cane. And he would go, he'd walk the streets. Here was the amazing thing about James. James knew everybody based upon their voice. It was amazing. Like, if you would go up to James and say, hey, James, what's going on? He would say your name. He memorized people's voices so well that when he would walk the streets and people would say hi, he'd go, hey, hey, and he would say their name because he knew them. That's the image here, right? Is the more I know Christ, by the way, Jesus said these words in John 15, my sheep hear my voice, John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. That's the image. Is I get to know Christ and in those moments where I don't know what to do, I know him. I know his character. I know his heart. I know his purpose. For some of us in the room, for some of us at our campuses, for some of us online, that's our primary need, is we need to know Christ more. And in knowing Christ more, I know my identity more. In knowing Christ more, I know the direction of my life more. And knowing Christ more, even when I don't know what to do, I know who I am. I need to know Christ more. This is why community groups are so important. This is why gathering together is so important. So you have people reminding you of who God is, reminding you of why you're in this. This is why this journey is so important to do together. That's why church is so important. So I can know Christ more. And knowing him more, I know his voice, and now I can follow. Paul doesn't stop here. Notice the second thing. Now these next three actually flow from the first. You'll notice that. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which you've gone. Notice, I have my eyes enlightened that I may know. 
that now I can understand, now I can see clearly, that I, now I can experience these things that are true. And there are three of them. Notice the first one. That you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. Another phrase that we say that hinders our, our foundation of identity is we not only say, I don't know what to do, but we say, I'm gripped by worry. For many of us, the thing that has caught us during this season is that anxiety has hold us captive. Worry has struck us. And so we live with overwhelming anxiety and worry over the things that are happening in our lives. So what does Paul do? Paul counteracts that worry. Right, for you and I, we all experience worry, by the way. And worry has a way of affecting our identity. In fact, I would dare say that anxiety and identity are deeply connected. They're deeply connected. Because when you are anxious, what are you doing? You are wavering in uncertainty. You are wavering in uncertainty and you can be pushed aside or you can be drawn away so easily. This was happening to many of those Christians, right? They, they were newfound Christians. All the pressure of their climate was against them. And what happened? Well, many of them began to fade. Why? Because there was a culture of uncertainty. There was, a, there was wavering of uncertainty. So what does Paul say? Paul says that you may know your heart being lightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. What Paul says is I want you to have the certainty of hope. Number two, the certainty of hope. Now, when we hear the word hope, in our generic culture, in our world, hope is not specific. Hope is wishful thinking. Hope is a what if. Hope is, I hope this happens. Hope is a mathematical equation that says, I believe if I do this and do this, this will happen, but I don't know. It is uncertain, right? Our hope is uncertain. In the first century, the word hope was not uncertain. The word hope was confident expectation. Biblical hope is actually confident expectation. It is a certainty of what I know to be true. So what is Paul saying here? That you would have the hope to which you have been called. You have this, this hope. I'm gripped by worry. Now I have the certainty of hope. In the Greek, it's, it's not unsure, it's certain. In fact, it's like William Carey, the great uh, missionary to the Chinese. He said, expect great things from God. That's hope. Hope is that I can expect great things from God. The certainty of hope begins to reshape our lives so we live differently because we know the hope that we have. I, I love the way Peter describes this. First Peter chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter 1, 3. According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to what? A living hope. This, this is hope that is so steady, it's living. It's moving, it's directing through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is a living hope, an active hope, a hope that doesn't waver. In fact, the writer of Hebrews chapter 6 says it this way. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope, talking about Jesus Christ. We, we have an anchor for our souls. In the midst of being, being paralyzed by anxiety, I have a hope that is anchored. I might feel like anxiety is trying to pull me away, but it can't. Why? Because I know the hope of my calling. I know I am in Christ. This is exactly, by the way, what Paul's trying to point out. He's saying this. He says, if I don't, you don't have confident hope, you're going to waver with uncertainty. So anchor yourself in biblical hope. Anchor yourself in a hope that doesn't move. Anchor your calling in who Christ has called you to be. Chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Spirit, secured by the Son. Anchor yourself in who Christ is. Let living hope 
breathe in your life. Uh, you know, I think about this, this idea of an anchor. I was reminded of this whenever I go to the beach. Um, for the past few years, we go to the beach. And this never fails. This happens every time. We go to the beach, and uh, we put up a beach umbrella. And I do it the way all the lifeguards would do it, right? With my beach body, I'm out there, and I'm, I'm taking That wasn't meant to be funny, by the way. I take this thing and, you know, you, you twist it and you put it in there. The beach, the base of the beach umbrella, you get it deep in the sand. And you want it to be anchored. And you remember that saying when you were a kid, I'm digging a hole to China. Like I'm, I don't know why it was always China. Like they don't, uh, I didn't know as a kid that it didn't go to China if I went through the earth. But anyway, I was digging a hole, right? And every year, this, this never fails. There's always, we're out on the beach, the umbrella's up, and there is a gust of wind. And the umbrella constantly just, and it looks to impale anybody near it. It's true. I don't know if you've had that experience. I've had that experience. And last year, true story, I'm sitting there under the uh, beach umbrella. One of my sons is with me. And all of a sudden, a wind gust comes. And this thing begins to fly. And it was like, it was like ninja skills. I just went, Whoa! And I caught this thing on my hand. And my son looked at me. And I was like, that's right, son. <laughs> Back in the ground. It was a cool dad moment. I mean, it was a cool dad moment. I looked, I looked ninja-like. My skills were amazing. Well, this year... Uh, my wife, knowing this happens every single year, and uh, I, I think I shared a few weeks ago, we went to, on vacation and there was a tropical storm. We got to go on the beach one day, and there was no sun, but we took the beach umbrella anyway, so I had it ready in case we needed it. And we got this instrument where you actually twist, and this thing like is, it's like the Benford 2000 of umbrella holders. Some of you have no clue what show that is I just mentioned. But, and I'm taking this thing, and I'm putting it in the ground, and I put the umbrella in, and I'm like, this thing isn't moving. Like, this thing is solid. That's the image here. The, the, the image of this is, where are you going to tether yourself in the midst of uncertainty? Where are you going to tether yourself in the midst of a weird climate and a weird culture and a weird season? Where are you going to tether yourself? What Paul says is, I pray that you'll tether yourself in the hope to which you have been called. Not wavering, but certainty in Christ. He goes on. Notice he says, not only to the hope to which you've been called, but now he says, I pray that you would understand, notice the next thing, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. See, Paul understands that not only will we say, I don't know what to do, and not only will we say, man, I feel overwhelmed and anxiety, but he also knows that we're going to say something like, I don't feel like I'm enough. He understands that one of the things that steals our identity is that we don't feel like we measure up. We don't feel like we're enough. We don't feel like we're sufficient. We don't feel like we have enough to offer. By the way, much of those statements are based upon comparisons, are they not? We see somebody else and we think that they're super spiritual and we wish we could be like them and because we can't, we give up. Or we see somebody else and say, man, they just seem to be so smooth, cool, calm, and collected. I wish I could be like that. And we say, well, I'm just not, so I must not measure up. Much of it is founded in comparison. And can I tell you, I see this all the time as a pastor. It is the reason why many people walk away from the church. It is why many people walk away from the faith. Is they feel like they just don't measure up. Can I tell you, if you think that, if that sentence comes to your mind in a weird season, that is not what the Lord is saying here. That is not what Ephesians is about. In fact, Paul here prays that you would know the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. Notice. What he's telling us is that we would see the worth of God's inheritance in our lives. This is number three. The worth of God's inheritance in our lives. Notice, by the way, whose inheritance it is. What are the riches of his glorious 
inheritance. I love this. You know why? Because if it said of the riches of your glorious inheritance, it would actually bend to the culture that says you got to add up. It would bend to the culture that says you have to earn it. But it says the riches of his inheritance in you, in the saints. It's not our inheritance to give. It's our inheritance given by God to us. He says given to us. What's he, what's he saying? He, he is telling us we need to understand and see the worth of God's inheritance in our life. By the way, that, that, that passage in 1 Peter continues. 1 Peter chapter 1. I love Peter's description. Very parallel with Paul here. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now notice this. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now stop there. Kept in heaven. Notice the words repeated. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. Why could he just said unfading? Why can't he just said reserved for you? Why couldn't he just said unperishable? No, notice he's emphasizing. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's reserved in heaven. Then he goes on, who by God's power are being guarded. There it is again, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he says, in this you rejoice. Those moments you say you don't measure up, he said, no, 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 you have an inheritance, an inheritance that is reserved, it's undefiled, it can't be taken away, it is absolutely perfect, it is guarded for you. An inheritance that you will get, not based upon who you are, based upon what I am, but based upon the goodness and graciousness of a good God. Think about that. That should cause, Peter says, for us to rejoice. I mean, any moment where I don't feel like I'm enough, I all of a sudden think about the inheritance I've been given by Christ and what happens. I might not feel enough, but I know my identity. I know who I am. I might not feel like I add up, but what happens? I can have my head raised because I know that in Christ, there's an inheritance waiting for me. In fact, I would dare say we should give up trying to measure up. Give up trying to measure up. Why? Because God is not looking for impressive people. He's trying to show himself as an impressive God. We don't have to be impressive. Man, all of us here, we're messed up. We're messed up. Some of you aren't as messed up as I am, but we're messed up. But what we do have is an impressive God. There are times where I just don't feel like I measure up, but what happens? I've got an impressive God who's given me a glorious inheritance. An inheritance that one day will be worth all of the effort now. Here's the point, I think, is if you don't see what you have in Christ, you'll never be ready for what he wants to give to you now. So many of us are missing what God is trying to do in our life right now, what God is trying to give to us right now because we don't see the inheritance. We don't see what we already have in Christ and we're missing what God is saying, I'm giving to you now. If you don't understand your calling in Christ, you will not be ready to receive the work and, 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 and the planning, even in this season. If you're not ready, if, you're not, if you don't know who you are, if your identity isn't set in the inheritance of Christ, you're not ready for what he might want to bring to you in this season what he might be doing in your heart, what he might be growing you to, what he might be challenging you with. Like if you're not set in that, if you don't understand your glorious inheritance, you're not going to see what he wants to bring to you now. Now watch where he goes next. Kind of the third knowledge he wants to have, this knowledge he's praying for us. Verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe 
according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Let, let me just say, there's another phrase, right? Paul is confronting another phrase that steals our identity, and it is the phrase, I'm too weak. I'm too weak. I don't know about you, but there have been many moments in my life where I've said, I am too weak. I do not have the power. I cannot do this. I cannot, I can't. And can I tell you, can't is a, a curse word to the Christian. I'm not saying there aren't moments where we feel like we don't have power. Absolutely we do. There are moments where God is saying, no, I don't want you to do that. And in that moment, we better not. But for many of us, we say, I just don't feel like I have the power to do this. I don't have the power to endure. I don't have the power to get through this season. I don't have the power to live in this moment. I am too weak. I want you to see what he says here. That you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Here's what Paul is saying. There is a power that works for you. There is a power that works for you. In fact, I want you to see these words. Don't miss. This is powerful. Pun intended. Powerful. There are four words in verse 19 that represent or or, are defined as power, dominion, authority. Four words. And they're all different. I mean, notice the first one. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? That's the word dunamis, the word dynamite. He says, toward us who believe according to the working. That's the word energe, which is where we get our word energy. According to the working of his great might, the word kratos, might. And then he says that he worked. He used another word for work here, the word iskus. He uses four different Greek words. Why does Paul do that? To describe the power of God for you. He does it because he wants to see there's no cutting corners on the power of God. That everything is at your disposal. Every type of power you need has been given to you. Power is everywhere you cut it. He uses four different words to describe the power that is given to us. In fact, I want to show you one little phrase that seems to trump all of these. His description, notice verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness? I love that. The the word here, greatness, is another word for power. It's, It's a different word. It's kind of the idea of great. It's just simply greatness. But it's only used here. And it's the word megathos. And he puts two words together. It's hyperbalon megathos. Hooperbalon megathos in Greek from hooperbalo. Now let me describe what this means. Because you put these together, you have greatness, but then you have hooperbalo, hooperbalon. It is greatness that goes beyond any target of greatness you can have. The word balon means to throw. Hooperbalon means to throw beyond. So what is he saying? There is a greater than great greatness work that is happening. There is greater than great power that is in every believer. There is greater than great power available and, and, and given to every believer in Christ. You want to know your identity? You say, I can't do this. You've been given hyperbalo. Greatness that goes beyond the target. Greater than great You've been given that in your life. And so what does he say? I want you to be rooted in the power that God has given you. And he gives us two realities of this rooted. Notice what he says. You want to you know what where this power comes from? Notice it. This is amazing. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of every place. So it was this power that raised Christ from the dead is now yours, is now mine in Christ. And then he not only gives us the power of the resurrection, but now he gives us the position of Christ. We see the power of of God through the resurrection. We see the position of Christ through the power of God. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. You want to talk about power. The power of the resurrection, the the presence and, and position of Christ, that's the power. That's the power that God has given to you. I mean, the magnitude of this power is beyond our comprehension. It's, by the way, not in creation. It's in the resurrection. It's not just that he created something out of nothing. It's that he raised to life those who were dead. We see this power and authority. Here's the point that Paul's making. If you don't live in your spiritual power, you'll never do the difficult things in the difficult times. If you do not live in the spiritual power that God has given to you, you will never do the difficult things in the difficult times. And I want you to notice that Paul is saying, for you and I ever to pray and say, God, I need more power, Paul would say, eh. Paul would say, no, 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 the prayer is not you need more power. The prayer is you need to live in the awareness of the power that's been given to you in Christ. It's not more power, more this, more that. It's like I live in the reality of what Christ has already given to me. That's the whole point of this, this text, this prayer, is that he's already done this in our lives. Now, here's the question as we end. And there's so much more we could dive into, but here's the question. What if Paul's prayer was answered in your life? Imagine for a moment that his prayer was that you would the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. And that came true. Imagine for a moment that his prayer would would be that you would understand the greatness of the the hope by which you've been called, and that was true. Uh, Imagine for a moment that you would understand the glorious inheritance in Christ, and it would be true, you know it. Uh, Imagine for a moment that you would grasp the power of God in and through your life. Imagine if this prayer actually was answered in our lives. Imagine for a moment how we would live. In a world of uncertainty, in a world of wavering, in a world where we say things like, I don't know what to do, I'm gripped by worry and anxiety, I don't feel like I'm enough, I'm too weak to do this. Instead, we'd have the overflowing knowledge of God in us. The hope of God that raises our heads, the inheritance of God that that gives us purpose, the power of God that gets us endurance. And that, my friends, is a life of God. Like if we grasp the truth of what he prays, would totally transform our lives. Can I tell you, this is the Christian life. The the Christian life is a people who give everything they are because they understand in Christ they have everything they need. Let me repeat that. The Christian life are a people that give everything they have because in Christ they know they have everything they need. He's not saying pray for something greater. He is praying that we would understand the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened with all that God has already given to us. Let me ask you, what what are you missing? What what are you missing in your life? What are you lacking? Where is it you feel like you're frailing, where you're failing, where you're you're looking for an answer? Paul says, "I, I pray for you to have the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you would know, you would know the hope by which you've been called, the inheritance by which you've been given and blessed, the power that you have in Christ. And in that, our identity will not be moved. Our identity will not be shaken. We can get through anything because we know who we are. 
I'm going to ask you if you would stand where you are. Across every campus, would you just stand? And right now, maybe you're with us and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Like These things apply. He even says it in here, it says, to the believer. Maybe for you, these things aren't true and you're just wavering and wondering and, and you're untethered in life. And God wants to give you an anchor to your soul. He wants to save you. He wants to take the scales off your eyes. He's going to choose you. He's going to redeem you. He's going to secure you in the spirit. And you're here and you don't know Christ. You're watching. You don't know Christ. Would you, if you're at a campus, would you stop by next time? We have people prepared to talk with you, to share with you how you can know for certain you have eternal life. If you're online, would you just right now say, I, I want to go to a chat room, a, a prayer room right there. We have a live prayer available. For those of you that do know Christ, let me ask you, are you living in the reality of this prayer? Man, there's so many times I've had to go back to God. Okay, I, I don't feel like I'm going to get through, but I have your power. I've got your power in me. There's no reason I can't. The power that raised you from the dead, the power that positioned you on high, put everything under your feet, it's, it's, it's mine. I know the hope of my calling. My, my head can rise in this season. I don't like it, but my head can rise. I, I know the hope of my calling. I know the inheritance that's waiting for me. Listen, I, I might not get through this day, and, and I might not live through this day, but I know the inheritance waiting for me. I can get through anything then. May the eyes of our heart be enlightened. May we know who we are in Christ. God, I want to thank you for your word. We live in a confusing time, a world of, of, of great anxiety, of great worry, a world that gives no answers to these realities, but only begs more questions. And God, while it would seem weird for us, it's actually weird for those without you. Because those without you, they're living untethered, they're living without hope, they're living without inheritance, they're living without power and purpose. But in you, God, we have all that we need. And so, God, we as Christians, may we live, may we live with everything because we know in you we've been given everything that we need. May we live with knowledge. May the eyes of our heart be enlightened. May we live with, with hope. May we live with inheritance that leads to joy. And may we live with power, a power that only you can give. When we can't, you can when it feels like we can't go on, you're there. So God, give us that strength. Give us that reminder of who we are in the dark seasons, and in, in the moments we're wondering. We don't know what to do. When anxiety grips us, when, when we, we don't feel like we measure up, when it seems like fear is gripping us, we don't have the power. God, remind us of these things. Lord, help them to simmer into our souls. Help them to, to seize every opportunity so that you get glory and honor, Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who made us in your name, Jesus. Amen.